You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem-solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal, promoting inclusion and success for all. And it's perfectly okay for teachers who come from methods that were very popular in the past, and maybe that's all that they know. If they can equip in their classroom and integrate into their practice one single task weekly, that's great. Because we, as, as, as practitioners, we need to constantly be reflecting on our own practice and how are we um, growing as professionals, but also what skills are we giving our students What are we equipping them with so that they can go outside and and be participants in society and help to make society better? Melissa Baralt has an important message for all would-be global learning faculty. Fear not. In her words, global learning isn't some massive endeavor. It's about a change of instructional perspective and some tweaking of how you engage students in meaningful tasks and assess them. I found this conversation the perfect inauguration for this podcast, because Melissa makes plain what global learning is. Fundamentally, it's about validating our students' diverse needs and perspectives and involving them in collaborative efforts to analyze and address complex problems that transcend borders of difference. She's making the case for why global learning must be universal. For her, global learning is a social justice issue. And Melissa, even though she's a linguist, she also talks in different disciplinary languages. She has appointments in modern languages, biomedical engineering, and the School of Education. She can speak firsthand about how global learning can and should be applied across the curriculum. We recorded this conversation on Valentine's Day, so here's our love letter to global learning. Hey, Melissa. Hi, Stephanie. (laughs) Let's start with um, you just telling the world a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. It's really an honor and a pleasure to to speak with you again. I adore your work, and I'm very grateful for your work. Um, My name is Melissa Baralt. I'm an associate professor of psycholinguistics. I have joint appointments here at FIU in the Department of Modern Languages in Department of Education, in our Center for Children and Families under Psychology, and also Biomedical Engineering. Um, so as a linguist, you can see how our field very much can encompass STEM and the humanities, and I love that I can do that at FIU. When it comes to my teaching, I teach within the Department of Modern Languages. So in my pedagogy, I am a methodologist. I train future language teachers. And you have a big idea that you would like to share? Because we chatted a little bit before we started recording. Yes. And um, and you shared this idea with me that I think is so important to our, our, our listeners. So go for it. I think, um, so as somebody who, who has the gift of being able to work so much with teachers, my main message about global learning for teachers is that global learning is not some massive endeavor or new methodology or 300-hour-long training that you need to do to incorporate into your teaching. It's not that at all. 
All that it is is simply a change of perspective and some tweaking of how you are engaging your students in meaningful tasks and assessing them. So global learning is how can we work together to try to solve real world problems, whether in our local community or global problems? And we can all do that. But a a key difference would be, for example, with language teaching in my field, instead of assessing students with a multiple choice test or a very grammar based test where we're asking them to fill in the blanks, how about asking them to, in groups, Um, create a website about how and why Spanish is so important in Miami or create a social media platform where they are informing the community, society at large of um, tropes about Spanish language in this country and why it's so important to use another language or even go give a presentation at a local elementary school here in Miami and talk to fourth graders about, hey, Keep on speaking your Spanish with your families and your friends. Be proud to be Hispanic and speak Spanish. You can do it. And we're college students, and this is what we do. And that's see the key difference there. And that's, I think, what global learning really equips us to be able to do is change it how we are actually engaging students in learning and, frankly, learning with them. That's a beautiful articulation of what global learning is all about, in your words, and for your life, and how you engage with your students. Yes. You're describing the actual things that you do with your students in your language classes. Melissa, when I took language in high school and university, we did not do that. (laughs) I mean, that was not what my experience was. My experience was learning the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. My experience was diagramming the sentences. My experiences was was learning about the culture within which the language was embedded some. My experience was having some language partners, um, doing literature analysis. But it had nothing to do with engaging with the community or advocacy or, or anything like that. And I'm wondering, is that the way language is generally taught now? Is what you're doing on the cutting edge or or is it well with I have so to much. say with language teaching methodology, my field is famous for its pendulum swings of different fads. So and it's it's a fascinating field to study just from a historical perspective, looking at how methods for teaching languages have changed even over the past 50 years. We have so many different methods for teaching languages. So many of us are very familiar and have experienced grammar translation method, um, audiolingual method, the silent way. There's so many different ways to teach and use a language and um, very, very communicative ways of teaching language, the direct approach. Right now, um, thanks to years of accumulation of, of research in second language acquisition, which is relatively a new field, we are really espousing task-based language teaching. But even today in, in 2019, task-based language teaching is realized in very different ways across the globe. There are some countries who require that mandate that languages be taught in a task-based way. Could, but of course, a teacher's interpretation that varies. Could you unpack what task-based language instruction is? And, yes. and when you do that, my follow-up question for you is can these different 
methodologies be incorporated into a global learning mindset if that is your mindset as as a faculty member teaching Absolutely. future teachers or teaching heritage language learners right. is it one or the other or can it be both i think that they align so well and so whereas if you visually want to think of it global learning is kind of this um so the this this premise where okay how are we getting our students to collaborate to work together really work together to try to solve societal problems and then task-based language teaching is one way of putting that into practice so it's it's the methods with which you are engaging them in global learning activities um and again even with whether it's global learning or, or doing global learning or doing task-based language teaching or TBLT, I cannot emphasize enough to teachers that um, it is, it's not a massive endeavor. It's really quite simple. So to give you a definition, all that task-based language teaching is, is teaching with, learning with, and assessing with real-world tasks. So instead of, like the example I, I gave you before, assessing learners with a translation paragraph or multiple choice, are we giving them real world tasks that they actually need to be able to do with the language in society? And I'll quote um, one of my favorite professors and colleagues, Dr. Mike Long, he's a professor at the University of Maryland. He has said that task-based language teaching is really a, a social and moral duty. When we are teaching languages, it's our social responsibility to give our learners tasks that they can do with that language. Because if you think about it, many language learners around the world are language learners by lack of choice. So whether it's war zones or refugees or migrants or movement, those people need to be able to learn these languages in order to survive. And so if we have the gift of being able to teach a child or a young person or an adult another language, are we really equipping them with the skills to go out and do in society via that language all that they need to do to have a good and meaningful and healthy life and survive. Okay. You are an interdisciplinarian, right? Very much so. Okay. So when I hear you describe task-based language instruction, mm -hmm. I'm thinking that that concept, the task-based piece, is applicable in any discipline. I agree. Right? So... When, and there's different kind of interpretations of TBLT. A strong version of task-based language teaching would require that you start out with a needs analysis with your students. And that can be as simple as a one-page little questionnaire that you give to your students and you say, what are your goals with this language? What do you need to be able to do? Can you write down five activities or tasks or skill sets, things that you need to do? And that might include filling out a job form or writing your resume in the target language or... Um, registering a child for school in that target language, asking your students what their real world needs are. And then from there, you can design and derive tasks from their needs. So you design a task and you, you of course, plan the methodology around that task. You're basically equipping them with the capacity to go out beyond the classroom walls and do that real world task in society. And I do, I think that that can be applicable to, to any field. I mean, I, um, but it's, I will say, too, it can be overwhelming for teachers who have, say, 250, 300 students and feel that they have to learn a whole new method. It's not that. 
TBLT, even if you are incorporating one real world task into your practice once a week, that's still doing TBLT. That's kind of a slow integration of it. And it's perfectly okay for teachers who come from methods that were very popular in the past, and maybe that's all that they know. If they can equip in their classroom and integrate into their practice one single task weekly, that's great. Because we, as, as, as practitioners, we need to constantly be reflecting on our own practice and how are we um, growing as professionals, but also what skills are we giving our students? What are we equipping them with so that they can go outside and, and be participants in society and help to make society better? So this piece about social responsibility as faculty members, yeah. this, is, this is important. Um, and it's definitely a change in state of mind um, for us as faculty members because as scholars, we are rewarded mm-hmm. for becoming experts in tiny, very specific aspects of our field. Yeah. And in terms of our own professional development and advancement, we are often um, rewarded and 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 pressured sometimes to to wall off that that area of our expertise and what you what I hear you saying correct me if I'm wrong is that we need to jump over that wall we need to see what is beyond that wall we cannot impose upon our students the requirement that they become the same type of subject matter experts yeah. and that we are, yeah. no matter how much we love that tiny little piece of, of real estate, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that our students who come to us, our, our tens or hundreds or thousands of students that come to us, mm-hmm. what, are, what are their lives about? We have to ask ourselves that question. What might, what do we really want our students to be able to do with this information, with with these, with the knowledge and skills that they that they're gaining in our courses, and that may involve, as you are implying here, asking our students, what what's your life that's, about? That's precisely what task based language teaching asks that we do. So this needs analysis, um, and there are a lot of resources out there. there there's a whole research line two of, of re, uh, needs analyses, and there's many different sources and methods. So a needs analysis, by definition, is, is frankly a, a rigorous study where we're looking at, in a triangulative way, what are our students' real-world needs with the language. Um, granted, most teachers are not researchers who have experience in applied linguistics and have the time to do a lengthy needs analysis. And so just from a teacher perspective, even if you can start out with a simple questionnaire, and you could give this to your students on the first day of class. Tell me what your real world needs are. What do you want to be able to do with Spanish? Um, this semester I'm teaching my very first online, fully online Spanish for Heritage speakers course. Um, and I asked before we started the semester for students to fill out a questionnaire. It was anonymous, telling me what they're just about them. Um, how do they use Spanish if they do in their daily lives? Tell me about their families. Tell me about how are you doing with the balance between school and life. Tell me a little bit about your life and how can I make sure that this course helps to support you. What are some real world things that you want to be able to do in Spanish? And Stephanie, I learned so much. Um, 
95% of my students in this class work full time. Um, and so, and I had a couple people comment, thank you so much for asking me this because my schedule is, is crazy. And so how do I balance this time? A lot of them, um, speak exclusively Spanish with their parents or their grandparents. Many of them gave me concrete, specific things that they need and want to do in Spanish, whether it's do a job interview, um, fill out a resume, be able to help in customer service in Spanish, be able to help if you're working as a nurse, um, check in a patient in Spanish, um, write social media tweets in the Spanish language. Um, and a lot of them said, I really want to be able to continue talking with my grandparents and speak better with them in Spanish. And many expressed, you know, if they have children wanting to be able to continue speaking Spanish with their kids. And so thinking of all of those different needs, how can I then interpret those into tasks that we do for the, the course curriculum? And so um, each week I am designing tasks around a, a, a grammar component, but the grammar is not the focus. The focus is the real world task that I got from their answers on that initial questionnaire. And then I embed the grammar in there. And I try to give to my best ability feedback not preemptively, but retrospectively, where they've done the task already, and then I give them feedback on their own linguistic output. Okay, so the students get to choose the task for themselves. So you're, I'm just trying to unpack this and understand specifically how you do it, because I'm sure our listeners are thinking, hmm, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I apply yeah. this? Probably not to the language course. We have, we're going to have people that teach everything under the sun from anthropology to chemistry right, to right. zoology. So everybody does the same, the same task each week um, or tasks, but I try to vary them and make sure that across the whole semester, I am designing and giving them real world tasks that meet everyone's needs from that initial needs analysis questionnaire I gave them. Okay. So Maybe this will lead us to a little bit of brainstorming, live brainstorming. But I'm thinking about, you brought it up earlier, what about that professor who has 200 students in their class? Yeah. How could they do that? Well, I would say that, first of all, anything is possible. And so how can we, and in the online platform, and I, I have to say this, and I know that my fellow teachers and colleagues out there who teach fully online, online teaching has a lot of what can feel like frustrations and limitations and half of the emails you're answering have to do with, my my I can't access the course or I can't get my video to upload and just technical issues, solution and brainstorming. Um, but the online environment has amazing, wonderful affordances that really foster second language acquisition and language learning and language use um, that are, I think, even better than a face-to-face platform. And so how can I, as a professor, maximize those online affordances and really give my students the opportunity to be using the language as much as they can? And of course, heritage language learners are a very different population than foreign language learners. They have unique needs and um, unique gifts. And so how am I learning about all of their gifts and and maximizing the course um, so that each student really thrives and can use his or her Spanish or her linguistic variety and give them feedback that that encourage them, encourages them to continue to want to use Spanish. So here's, here's an example. Um, I'll give you actually 
two examples of tasks that that were in different areas of, of language production. So, and then of course the way that I did feedback for this population. So one was students had to record themselves interviewing a family member. And in the instructions it said, friends can count as family too. So interview somebody who's very meaningful to you in your life and ask that person about their favorite childhood memory. So that's a task where they have to use their Spanish to interview this person. Of course, I gave them specific requirements, a time limit, et cetera. Um, and then afterwards, so the, the, the videos of these students, I had so many videos of my students talking with their abuelitas, so their grandmothers, and, and watching my students sit down and spend 20 minutes with a grandparent just listening to their stories. Um, it was it was amazing. And I'm, I, and so the way that I give feedback, so everyone has to turn in their video to me. And first and foremost, the feedback is, this is amazing. I'm so proud of you for using your Spanish. What a gift that you can talk with your, your abuelita or your tío or your best friend who's your roommate. Um, and I'm proud of you. And I hope you keep up your Spanish. And then I give language-based, grammar-based, lexical-based feedback based on their linguistic production. So I'll say, um, here's some feedback. So um, here where you said if, if the student's embedding or code switching in a lot of English or just doesn't have the terms in English, here's how you can say this in Spanish. Um, I'll give feedback on a few uh, grammatical forms, whether they're, they're erroneous, so how to say it target-like, or if they use a form um, it's it's very important with heritage language learners to honor and and give space and really make sure that their own linguistic variety that they know that's a valid variety. And so this is outstanding. Another way too, you can say this is X Y Z, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's if it's very unique to only one specific linguistic variety. And then I have them read that feedback, and then as a follow up secondary task, they have to do this. So they have to acknowledge that feedback and go back and watch their video and then transcribe for me the sentences, their own sentences that they said, incorporating that feedback into their production. And so let's say the grammar focus of that week was the preterite and the imperfect, which is the past tense in Spanish. Also, I want you to go back to your video and every time your grandmother said um, a verb in the past tense, write that down for me. And here, why did your grandma use the imperfect or the preterite tense? What do you think? So that gets them to the first and foremost psycholinguistic theory supported here is they are using the language entirely in a fully meaning-based way, interviewing a grandparent. And then the grammar focus retrospectively is based on their own unique production where they're really having to think about language and grammar. Um, and that therefore helps to kind of them to internalize, ah, okay, here, so here my, my grandma said this, and this in Spanish is the difference between preter and perfect, and here's how I can spell these verbs. And as many of my students have never, ever studied Spanish formally. They, of course, speak it natively because it's what they've heard from birth with their families. Um, and so a lot of them indicated on the needs analysis, I want to have better grammar knowledge and better writing capacity in Spanish. So that's that's one way of doing um task-based language teaching, a real task, and then giving, teaching grammar around a task methodologically. Okay, there's so much in that. And, and, and I think our listeners are probably going to be thinking, how does that, how could I take that staged feedback 
that you just described and apply it to the specific knowledge and skills that that I'm teaching in my course. So that's a thing, the staged feedback, where you are giving your students some specific, first of all, you're validating their, their unique approach, Essential. which may not be the same approach that you would take right. or someone else would take to solving that problem. Secondly, you're giving some suggestions for alternative approaches. If they want to, because I have to say, for many of my students, speaking Spanglish is their identity. Okay, there we and go. that is to be honored. And imagine... Unfortunately, the way that some people can approach heritage language teaching, whether it's Spanish or Chinese or Korean. So you have a, what's supposed to be a safe space for these learners. And they come in and they're, they're trying to speak in their heritage language. And then for every quote unquote putative grammatical mistake they make, it's like, that's wrong. No, that is not how we should be teaching heritage speakers. We should be teaching them in a way that empowers them and lets them know it's a safe space to use your Spanish, to speak your best. And after you do, I'm going to give you some specific feedback on some of the areas that you said you would like improvement on or help on. And so we do, we do have a lot of linguistic variety, um, diversity, or or dialectal differences. Um, But it's so important to honor those. And learning in any discipline, you are learning a type of language. You're learning the concepts. You're learning the mindset of that particular discipline. And students will make the same kinds of kind of errors or they'll think outside the box. and, And sometimes it's hard for us as faculty members to get our minds around the way that our students are thinking. So... So you, we first begin but with some kind of validation, finding some kind of truth, some kind of excellence in what the student is doing or even attempting to do. The second thing that I heard you do is then giving like a slight redirection or another alt, or an alternative that, that the student might or might not want to take. Mm-hmm. And then the third piece that I heard in your feedback is asking the student to be metacognitive, to then go back and look at their own work and you give a very specific direction to the student to to go and look for something specific, pull it out, analyze it, and think about it. Now, to get back to that first, to the question that I had about how do you do this in a a large group, Mm -hmm. could students theoretically do that with each other? They absolutely can, and that is precisely one way for somebody who's teaching a very large class to facilitate that. And I want to emphasize, with task-based language teaching, ideally we can focus on meaning first. We're giving them a real-world task that's solely focused on meaning because a, a task, by definition, needs to be focused on meaning. It needs to have a gap. It requires students to do something in order to complete the task. Um, they're using their own resources. They're not just regurgitating what a book or the teacher says. And there's a clear outcome. They have something to show for having done that task. So in the task example I just gave, the outcome was the video that they turned in. And it was fully based on meaning because they were sitting down and interviewing a family member or a loved one or best friend, et cetera. Um, so I, in this case, watching the videos, I give that retrospective feedback. But what you can do in an online platform, for example, um, one of the affordances is we can, so say you have 50 students, you can pair your students in two groups just for this activity, 
maybe just four students. And so the follow-up or secondary task is everybody watch each other's videos and you have to be very specific. Um, so, so I would say I would include four very specific items that they have to do to complete this task. Watch your peers' videos. You have three other people in your group. Number two, make a comment on what you liked most about their video. Number three, um, okay, you are going to watch, you're now going to rewatch student A's video, you student B's video, you student C, you student D. Write down all of the verbs that you heard that student's family member say in the video. And then number four, okay, guys, what? Let's all, in your group together, I want you guys to, and this is where we have asynchronous posting and they can chat. Um, did we hear, where do you guys think, where did you notice that the family members were using the imperfect versus the preterite? What do you think are the linguistic reasons for which we would use this aspectual version of the verb and that? Um, can you give me a definition of that? And then you can say, did anybody hear some verbs that we might be able to say in another way? And so for heritage learners, it's very important to me to not frame discourse around making mistakes or errors. Um, here's a classic example. My my dear colleague, Eric Kamaid Freshas, he's a, a famous interpreter. And um, he hears this often, too, when he's doing interpretation. So this this form, aiga. So when people say the, the, the correct, quote, quote, unquote, correct subjunctive form of this verb, a ver, is aya. But people will... And this is, this is something that brings to, in fact, the, the very linguistic varieties that we are all speaking that are not a standardized variety of that language is what, in fact, changes languages. But many people say a, quote, unquote, erroneous form, aiga. But so many people say it that it is, and you hear it in the street, you hear it in society. I think it would be wrong, socioculturally wrong to say to a student that form is wrong because what if that student's mother and grandmother employ that term? So as, as professors, when we are working with, when we have the privilege of working with and serving heritage speakers to equip them and empower them with using their heritage language in US society, that is not a wrong form. Excellent, I love that, very good. I loved your video with your grandmother. Here are some other ways that you can say it and give them the metalinguistic knowledge around that form. So here's the verb, here's how we conjugate it. You are right, we do hear this other version all the time in society and your family, my family says it too, et cetera. But here's another way that you can say this. And this is in fact the form we would use with standardized Spanish. But of course it's important to know, standardized Spanish is not a real thing. It's just this, societally created linguistic variety of Spanish that people who are in positions of power, of power speak, right? Uh, you are, it's responsiveness all over the place. <laughs> You're talking about being responsive to your students, their specific family needs. You're talking about being responsive to, um, to, to your field. You're talking about being responsive in terms of what, the skills and knowledge that our that higher education writ large is is equipping our students with there's a lot of responsiveness in it and and i know that another aspect of your work has to do with culturally responsive right. pedagogies which is of great interest to our fi uh, the field of higher education 
writ large. Right. Because we know that our culture is evolving. That's something that you were just talking about. <laughs> our the, the culture is evolving and even higher education, our our culture is evolving. So can you share a little bit about the work that you do around developing pedagogies, pedagogical materials that respond to the needs of our students, but also that are you're engaging with other faculty colleagues yes. at other institutions to help them be more responsive as well. And and I would say, actually, I'm engaging with other colleagues to learn from them and make sure that, you know, we as those in my field, so psycholinguistics and applied linguistics, where we're we've done so much of our training in a laboratory and we study the psycholinguistic constructs that are involved with how the brain acquires another language. I have gotten to a point in my career where it is not possible to continue and to best serve my students without learning from rich linguistic anthropology and people who are in different fields and um, ethnographers and people who engage and really study and look at the human experience. If I were to focus only on psycholinguistic forms and target-like production, I would be a disservice to my students. Um, so I, amazing, gifted scholars um, from whom I've learned so much include Philip Carter here at FIU, Andrew Lynch at the University of Miami, Jonathan De La Rosa at Stanford, um, Holly Cashman, she's at New Hampshire, who do incredible work on Latinx young people and their language and ideologies in our society about speaking another language and what these young people um, inherit. Um, unfortunately, very, very negative messages in our society that to be an American citizen, this is an English-only speaking country. And so it is a societal problem when a Latinx person is put down or publicly ostracized for for speaking Spanish. And we've seen this on social media. I mean, these messages get put forth all the time by our, our elected officials. This is America. You need to be speaking English only. So my kids in this class, I'm asking them to use their Spanish and to speak Spanish when these unfortunate and damaging tropes are going around U.S. society of what it means to be a Spanish speaker. And my, my colleagues, another amazing um, colleague, her name is Uju Anja. She's at um, Penn State. And she focuses on um, black identity in a Spanish language classroom and heritage learner experiences and how learners, minorities, can or cannot, frankly, really gain um, an ethno-racial affinity in the classroom. And that's our responsibility as teachers to be giving our students safe spaces where they can feel that they can belong to a speech community of that target language. Um, and so I, I, if I were to focus only on grammatical accuracy, that's a disservice because I am not thinking about the ideologies that my students have to face outside of the classroom. Um, so I, if I hear you correctly, you're talking about giving your students safe space to connect to the concepts, to connect to the, the skills. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm hearing you talk about that, that you're also discussing giving faculty safe space 
to do the kind of work that you do. So when you said, if I were to simply remain in the lab and do the pure research, that that wouldn't be doing your students the service that you seek to serve. Now, that's not to say that we don't need people who are lab rats. (laughs) Of course. We really need in the scholarly setting in our universities and co- in colleges, we need people that are doing the pure research. We need it. We need people that are focusing in their coursework on the kind of background knowledge and these fundamental skills, especially in many of the professions. Like um, if you're going to become an accountant or if you're going to become an engineer or a doctor, you do have to put in a lot of pure research time you have to do a lot of reading and regurgitating of 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 concepts and vocabulary and know the parts of the body there's a space for that and but we also through global learning i don't want to interrupt you um need to make a space for those of us who want to go the step step further to okay how do we take this and apply it right. and how do we even interrogate the cultures around which or or within which we can apply these things given our gender, our sexuality, our our cultural background, our socioeconomic status, how do we take that pure research and those those pure that background knowledge, apply it in real world settings and invite our students to think about the the freedom with which they may or may not have to apply right. what they learn. You know what what you just alluded to, Stephanie, yes, of course, rigorous empirical research is important. And but here's an example of why all of this coming together is so essential. Um, my work over at Biomedical Engineering on our engineering campus at FIU, I, for the past couple years, have been working with my team there. So we are investigating the cognitive benefits of bilingualism for preterm born children. So all of these children are now between six and seven years old, and we are giving them tests measuring their executive functioning. They were all born preterm here in Miami. So um, we are indeed finding that Bilingual preterm-born children have enhanced executive functioning compared to monolingual preterm-born children. What this means, bilingualism helps preemies. But every single Hispanic mother who has participated in my study has told me that her pediatrician and or her child's teacher told her to stop speaking Spanish. Because of the child's history with premature birth, they do have some attentional deficits, et cetera. And so you see where I can no longer progress in psycholinguistics without acknowledging linguistic anthropology and language ideology. And I'll quote Jonathan De La Rosa here. He is one of his latest books is about um, language teaching as a form of social justice. And that's where it aligns so beautifully with global learning, because that's precisely what global learning is asking us to critically reflect on in our own teaching of, okay, remember that, that that so nice brief definition, how are we getting our students to work together to solve societal problems? Mm-hmm. And I love that. And so methodologically, I can make that into a task, but how am I getting them to really think critically about solving a problem? And sometimes those problems are the problems of the field. They're, it's Very the problem true. of being a bench scientist. Right. Right? So what where what are the ethical implications what are the social implications what are the personal implications of being a, of doing that of do of conducting an interview of doing this this pure empirical research mm-hmm. and then getting to the point where we're asking whoa i'm i'm hearing the people that i'm engaging with as my test subjects 
struggling with things that I have the power to speak out against. Where is that line? And I think this is an important point that you're making, Melissa, because so many of our pure social scientists, pure scientists are asking this important question, where's there room for me with global learning? Mm. Right? Like, if I'm, I'm a medieval historian, Hmm. You know, where's where? What societal problems do I have to, and my students have to to struggle with? And sometimes it can be the appropriation of that knowledge in in current forms. For instance, with with medieval history, um, or I, I have spoken with uh, medievalists who have said, "Well, one of the things that we're struggling with as a discipline is the appropriation of of our." of our studies of, of medieval history and of, of, of literature and symbols um, for racial, for racism. Yeah. So that is a current, that's a current problem to deal with. And sometimes we have historians who will say, I, that's not happening. So where is there room for me? Well, there's room in terms of the critique of the field. Whose voices are being heard? Whose voices are being shared? Uh, what kind of evidence counts as historical evidence? Um, these are global learning problems. Mm-hmm. They they require multiple perspectives, different disciplinary perspectives, but also different cultural and gender-based perspectives to see the gaps, right? And and empowering our students and our faculty to to speak out around those gaps. So that's, I don't know if we meant to go there together, but I think some of the things that you're talking about that you do with your students have a direct implication for for faculty in our research and uh, the kind of work that we do outside. I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I love that you asked that question because I think that you're right. And that is, how do other fields see the applicability to them? But I would say to that, that Number one, we can always equip our students with the capacity to further knowledge and improve this world. There are so many societal problems, even right outside our doors, right here in Miami. Um, and I would say for, as that the example that you just gave, a, a medieval historian um, or somebody who studies women's poetry from the 17th century, I think that there are themes that are universal and not anachronistic. So um, misogyny or racism or discrimination or lack of having a voice, how has that theme still continued to be in existence today? And what can we do about it? Um, How does the hashtag Me Too movement play a role with a space in which voices are heard. Do we see anything back then? Was it poetry as a space where voices were heard? And one thing in my department of modern languages, you know, I'm a I'm a psycholinguist working alongside literature specialists and people who study film and culture. And I love, even though we're fundamentally different fields, I love what I learn from them because I would say that one of the greatest things I've learned from my colleagues is that art and literature and film is one of the safest spaces universally to express and share discrimination and hardship and pain, which seem to be taboos 
universally across many cultures. It's not safe to talk about mentally um, not being well, so mental illness or depression or um, feeling that you have no voice or are, are, have no power. And so I, I love that, that my colleagues study this. There actually is a safe space in society, and there always has been that space for that expression. But how now could we apply that to our lives, and how can we make that even better? Um, and my students are experts in social media, and I think that that's, that is certainly a space where so much is being shared and being revealed and, and being brought to light. Um, and I will say, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about earlier were resources for global learning. And one of the, the spaces from which I most benefited was actually, and it was just a quick two-hour workshop that we did with you, but across that table, I mean, I sat that day with, there was a chemistry professor, a business professor, somebody who does human rights, um, somebody who does law, I, the linguist, and then a, a chef. <laughs> and right. Wow. That was right. just, it was so helpful and um, illuminating to see how they apply the concept of, okay, how do we get our students to work together to solve societal problems across their fields? And seeing those examples helped me so much. So you're saying in a comparative sense. Very much so. Experiencing how other faculty in vastly different fields are approaching these things right. enabled you to think about your field differently. That is really what what I'm hoping will happen when our listeners are reflecting upon hearing your very about your experience about of being responsive to your students' needs, right? Giving space for emotional a safe space a safe space for connection yes. the work that you do to validate your students mistakes or to validate what sub, what others might view as mistakes but you view differently you view them as a, as an opportunity or a learning experience or even a a perfectly valid way of expressing That's oneself exactly right yes. right and and so i'm what i'm hoping is that our listeners will take this this uh, way of thinking that you have and reflect in the same way that you did in that workshop. How does this apply in my chemistry classroom? How does this apply in my business classroom? How might I make small steps to understand my students a little bit better, to to connect, to to enable them to connect in emotional ways yeah. to the field and to the kinds of to the problems and the concepts that we are studying, and and help them feel safe, help our students feel feel safe. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. If somebody from who does tourism and teaches cooking and baking can do this, anybody can do this. And <laughs> I think one of the best examples might be. Um, the way I kind of changed how I was assessing my learners. So in the past, here's a, a good example. And um, Philip Carter, my colleague here, he's done so much work with the design of the languages of the world class. So in the past, it might have been a final examination assessing students' knowledge of everything covered in the course up until that point. So a sit-down paper test, right? Well, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> well, that's just the way it's done, right? Right. Um, but... With global learning application, um, and I, I want to make this this 
plea one more time, it is not a massive hard thing to do. It is just giving your students the space and tasks and the capacity to work together to solve a problem. So instead of that sit down test, what if you put your students into groups and they have to identify a language related problem, whether it's the disappearance of our world's languages or language ideology that you can visibly see here in Miami and that prevents, say, a six-year-old from wanting to speak Spanish with her parents um, and therefore maintaining her bilingualism and reaping the benefits of that bilingualism. How can you solve that problem? And honestly, the biggest challenge for students with this final project is coming up with the problem, but that's where they have to work together. And Stephanie, I, I learned so much from my students because it was things such as, well, you know, I remember I really stopped wanting to speak Spanish when I was in elementary school. So we think that that's the problem. So we're going to go give a presentation to a local elementary school here and talk to these kids. And I had two groups in my class gave presentations to elementary students here in Miami-Dade County. And seeing them talk to these these children, uh, like it's for children to see university kids say, you know, I'm I'm bilingual and I speak Spanish and English and I speak Portuguese and English and I speak um, Spanish and English, but I study Korean. And then we had one student who spoke um, five languages because he's from West Africa and the students were like, wow, how did you do that? Um, but talking to them, you know, in the United States, there is racism and there's racism around speaking another language. And we're going to talk about that explicitly because we want to make sure that you kids know that you can and should feel proud to speak your other languages with your parents and family members and out in society. And if anybody ever tells you that you should be speaking English only, well, here's what you can say to them. And that was just that right there. That's working together to solve a problem versus a sit down test. Um, and that is why we call it global learning for global citizenship. Yes. That's why we call it that. And it that that way of assessing frankly changed my life. I've just I've never seen anything more meaningful um, cuz I went with them than seeing my undergraduates present to elementary students. And that's that's the kind of it's this community engagement and almost community service. Um, and the, one of the schools the principal came and the hands raised, just everybody wanted to share. And it was really, really a powerful learning space. Um, and my students gave them a presentation on linguistic diversity. That's how I measured their knowledge. Right. right? That's That was going to be my question. So basically, you were observing yes. your students correctly applying the content of the course. It's just changing the space from applying that content on a piece of paper or on their keyboard right. to applying that content in a real world space that is meaningful and important for that student mm -hmm. and achieves a secondary positive impact for our community. Exactly, with the goal of trying to, even with a baby step and even in the space of one little elementary school, solve the problem of harmful language ideology that can affect how students talk and use their heritage language. You covered your content and students made a change in the world. Yes. Both and. It doesn't have to be either or. Yep. It can be both and with this change of mindset. Melissa, global learning is, has changed you? 
Oh my gosh, so much. I've learned, you know, I think it's it's easy for faculty who have so much to do and mm. I know that and honor that. Um trust me, my my schedule's nuts, but I, just I know, <laughs> just for us to try to go and have a meal together or yeah. kind of grab a cup of coffee, forget <laughs> it. It's taken like 7 years. We have years. to plan it a month in <laughs> advance. But it's 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 easy to get into this mindset of, oh god, this is another thing I have to do and learn and it's actually it's really not that. It's it's saying, hmm, how am I critically reflecting on my pedagogy? How am I advocating for being a professional in the field of education? How am I serving my students? And how is what we do in my classroom space, physical or online, helping me and also my students to go out and be participating, engaged citizens for a better global world? It's, it's really given me concrete examples of the types of tasks that I give them in my class and how I am measuring their learning. So the presentations that my students did at the elementary schools, my physical position, I was on the side. I was on the, the sidelines. They, the show was theirs. The show was them. And that, I would say, is the most meaningful and powerful way to show learning because they did a PowerPoint presentation on language diversity and all the linguistic diversity that we have here in Miami and what language ideology is. And when one of the groups had the students, there was fourth graders in that school, they all had to repeat, everyone say language ideology, language ideology. These fourth graders had never talked about these concepts before. That, I think, is so much more effective. And this is not based on my opinion, but based on my students' feedback to me. One thing I learned from from ECs here at our the, the CAT and here in the library. Artsy Vega. Mm-hmm. She's, she, um, I try to go to, to professional development workshops often, and, and she actually taught me once, you know what is a really good idea is to do what she calls a mid-semester check. And she even gave me a few examples of, of short, brief questionnaires. So... Um, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What's working for you so far? What's not working for you so far? How can I be a better teacher? And students are are very honest. Um, and it that right there, so admitting that I'm co-learning with you guys, I, I think that that language is of the world class. Um, designed around my colleague Philip Carter's book, in fact, was perhaps one of my favorite classes. And that was the first time I implemented global learning into my teaching. So surely that can't be a coincidence, right? (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of coincidences, we are recording this interview on Valentine's Day, and you just spoke about your pedagogy in terms such as honesty, checking in, getting out of the way, and allowing people to be who they are, Mm -hmm. um, emotionally connecting to people, validating differences. I don't know if I said that already, but that was a really big one. This is how we... This is how we love people. This is how we love disciplines. This is how we love our students. This is how we can love our work. Yeah. And um, I, just, I just think that it's no better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than talking about how global learning can, can enable us to uh, be loving human beings through, through our work. I think one of my favorite quotes is, work is love made visible. Mm. And I... That's very much what we do here as educators. Um, if I may share, I think one of, for me, one of the most powerful moments and a moment from which I learned during that Languages of the World class last semester was, you know, in talking about language ideology um, and 
harmful tropes around U.S. society and discourse that we hear. I had a student, he's from the Bahamas, and he told us how uh, his teacher told him once that he needs to speak good English. He needs to speak better English. And just for him to share that and then to be able to talk exactly how he really talks and the way he, his family talks in, for the rest of the semester in that class, he was one of the most vocal voices we had. And I was grateful to him for sharing with us his story of experiencing language prejudice and how that made him feel. And frankly, for sharing it with our other students, because some of my students had not experienced that before. And when we can see that a friend sitting right next to us has actually experienced prejudice just because of the way he talks, that right there is a powerful lesson. And it really made, I think, the final project of solving a societal problem that's language ideology or language related that much more meaningful because it affects even my, my buddy in class. It was a very amazing group. Thank you, Melissa, for my pleasure. Thanks sharing. for having me, Steph. And um, again, teachers out there, colleagues, global learning is not hard. <laughs> it's just a way of making our teaching have greater impact and assessing our learners better. It does not consume a significant amount of your time, I promise. Um, it's, it's very easy to do. And Stephanie, if, I, if you don't mind, you are one of our best resources here at FIU. So if anybody has doubts, they can contact you. <laughs> um, Thank you. And our, the workshops where we get to meet other colleagues and how they're doing across the disciplines, those oh. are really helpful. And that's just two hours out of your day. So Fantastic. Thank you again, Melissa. My pleasure, Steph. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.